So this is today. Today is yesterday and tomorrow is also today. You traveled through time to the present. Yes. Yeah, I don't think you get how time travel works. It's like we're stuck. You know, like a, like a needle on a scratch record. I wake up every day right here, right in Punxsutawney, and it's always February 2nd. It's one of those infinite time loop situations you might have heard about. It's a thing where the same day keeps happening. Time. in a damn time loop or something? Ah! Well, it's Groundhog Day, again, and that must mean that I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black, and I'm here by myself this week, here to discuss Groundhog Day, again, still. I've said a lot about this movie over the years, tens of thousands of words about it in my blog, or hundreds of thousands, I guess. Oof, so many. I'm a quotable expert on this film, if you need one. Also, there's a bigger thing going on this week, but this week is misleading. This week in this trilogy of shows, and I hope you're listening to all three because they do connect, and a trilogy of different shows. Basically, for me, it's this week. Six different recordings, six different shows that all connect to one another. Yesterday's Minutia Ex Machina tied directly into a Patreon-exclusive $1 review of Tick, Tick, Boom that went up back in December. This episode of Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute ties in directly with an episode of Twin Peaks Radio, which is usually a Patreon exclusive, but the occasional episode is not, including that one, episode 18. And tomorrow's episode of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute ties directly into a Patreon exclusive trash film review of Home Alone 2 that also went up back in November. So basically a week back in November ties directly into this week in, is it February? It's probably February. Should be February. Who knows? Who knows anything? Welcome to Twin Peaks Radio, the show where we remember... In the words of Major Garland Briggs, a real mystery can't be solved, not completely. It's always just out of reach, like a light around the corner. You might catch a glimpse of what it reveals, feel its warmth, but you can't know the heart of it. Not really. That's what gives it value. It can't be cracked. It's bigger than you and me, bigger than everything we know. I'm Professor Robert E.G. Black. Today this episode is bigger than... What I know, I guess, it's, there's a convoluted thing going on for me this week as I record this because I am essentially tying together six different podcasts recordings. A strange manner. If you're just listening to this one, you won't get all of that context and that's okay. But in a way, this is also sort of the heart of the week because I'm going to talk about punctum, which is a thing I mentioned last week. When I was trying to remember a word, when I was talking about Lynch's thing about the eye of the duck, and I wanted to get to punctum today. But what I'm doing, you should know, just in case you want to go find the context or you are already listening to all these things and want to know the order, is this week I recorded a $1 review of Tick Tick Boom for my Patreon, which that was tied directly to yesterday's, this is confusing, which was tied to, I was going to say yesterday's, but it's not yesterday. Okay, so I have three Movies by Minutes podcasts that will be starting fairly soon. Movies by Minutes podcast is what it sounds like, is you take a movie, you break it down into one-minute segments, and then each episode of your podcast talks about a minute of the film. I am doing three of them, upcoming, that tie together. Minutia Ex Machina, looking at the film Ex Machina, the Groundhog Day Project, minute by minute, looking at Groundhog Day, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute, looking at Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Those will be running on Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, every week, starting probably in January. And essentially what I'm doing this week is recording minutes six of each of those. And minute six of Ex Machina tied into that $1 review of Tick, Tick, Boom. 
minute six of Groundhog Day Project, minute by minute, is tying into this episode of Twin Peaks Radio. And minute six of Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind will tie into a trash film review of Home Alone 2. The six together are sort of me reevaluating the way I approach podcasting and the way I think about and deal with other things that I have wanted to do in my life that I didn't manage to make a living out of. I wanted to be a writer. I wrote novels and short stories. I wanted to be a filmmaker. I never really made any because I didn't have the opportunity as like a teenager. I went to a small private school. I grew up in a religious cult environment at the tail end of the Cold War, which was bad timing for that, thinking I wouldn't really have a future, and so I didn't know how to figure out how do you become a filmmaker as a teenager? How do you get a camera? What do you do? And I tried to go into film school when I went to college in the first place, right out of high school. Didn't get into the film school for obvious reasons. I hadn't you know, made any films. And ended up dropping out of school after two years and only went back many, many years later. Now I have my graduate degree, have become a professor, and it's a whole different thing of what I expected I was going to be. I also, in the meantime, had my Groundhog Day Project blog, writing thousands of words, tens of thousands of words about movies, over four years' worth of entries on a daily blog, the first year of which was looking at Groundhog Day, exclusively. I watched it each day for 365 days and wrote about it. And then what got me into podcasting was when I was asked to be a guest on Groundhog Minute, which was someone else's Movies by Minute podcast about that film. So I won't be the first one to be covering that film minute by minute, but I will arguably say I'll be the best. And I say that here on Twin Peaks Radio, where maybe some people listening to Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute won't hear it. Ha ha. Anyway, the only thing I really want to talk about with Twin Peaks today is why Josie is the first thing we see. Not the first thing. I mean, as last week I recovered the ducks in the pond and the, you know establishing shots of the location. But once we are now in a location, this is the start of the show. And the first thing we see is that dog lamp, which I talked about last week, and then it pans over to Josie at the mirror. It is worth noting, of course, in the script, Josie is not Josette Packard. She is... What is her name? No, Josie is not... Ooh, there's a weird order to this. Because secret history is where we find out more about Josie. Because it has her... Um, what is this supposed to be? This is part of the jacket on Josie put together by Interpol in Singapore just before she showed up in Twin Peaks. She was Josette Mai Wong, which is noted is not her real name. Among other aliases, Upright Autumn Bird, which is weird. It's an incorrect translation of her... Where did we get her maiden name? Her birth name is in here somewhere. Oh, there it is. Real name is Li Chun Fung which roughly translates as Upright Autumn Bird, but someone has pointed out on the Twin Peaks fandom wiki that Josie's Chinese maiden name, Li, is a common surname in China, while Chun Fung, often translated as Spring Phoenix, is a common female name. The translation provided in the Secret History of Twin Peaks, Upright Autumn Bird, is somewhat inaccurate as it is derived from Li Chun, a tonally different word that is not normally used as a given name. In addition, Li Chun actually means upright spring, whereas upright autumn would be Li Qiu. So they're mistranslating Li means plum or different tone. Li Chun means, you know, it, it's a whole convoluted mess and Interpol got it wrong or Mark Frost got it wrong. We'll come back to the secret history segment later. Actually, that might be all I need of it for now, because as we're watching this opening shot, we don't know anything about her, so maybe I'll save that for a long time from now. But there is something else you need to know, in case you don't already know it, but if you're listening to the show, you probably know this. Josette Packard was originally supposed to be Giovanna Pasqualini Packard, a beautiful woman in her 30s. In the script, she is wearing a silk negligee, sits at a vanity table combing her hair, lost in a dreamy state of mind. From outside, she hears Pete's pickup drive off, which isn't quite how the order goes, but that's in the script. She's barely in the pilot script, similar to the pilot episode. She's only in a few scenes. 
we see her shut down the factory, which goes roughly the same even though her name was different. We see her at the town meeting, but Dan Stedman, later Harry Truman, of course, says of her uh, to Cooper when Cooper asks about her, that's Mrs. Packard, Packard Sawmill, where's Mr. Packard? Died in a boating accident last year. Andrew Packard practically built this town, brought her back from Italy four years ago, left her everything. It's all of the inclusion of her, but what's important is that she was supposed to be played by Isabella Rossellini, who of course was in Blue Velvet, and who was involved with David Lynch at the time. Notably, actually, I'm not sure why she didn't play the part. I don't know when that happened. I think I had something on it in my bookmarks and I lost it. But notable thing I found about Isabella Rossellini, though, is that she has a twin sister named Isota, and they have made a thing of always living near each other, which is cool. Here, whether or not Josie has a twin, oof, that's a whole different thing, isn't it? Do I have that bookmarked? Where is Joan Chen's letter? When the return was coming, Joan Chen wrote a letter to David Lynch. Oh, that's interesting. Coming into who Josie's sister is, in an early draft of Fire Walk With Me, I guess it would be, Jeffries says, not going to talk about Judy. Well, now, I'm not going to talk about Judy. In fact, we're not going to talk about Judy at all. But I ain't got a whole lot to go on. But I will tell you one little bitty thing. Judy is positive about this. Her sister's there too, at least part of her. This is the letter that Joan Chen wrote to David Lynch, writing as Josie. Dear David, I write to you from the wooden drawer knob in which I have been trapped for the past two decades, yearning restlessly for an escape. I hear voices whispering the rumor of a return to my body, and I implore you, O oh Creator, to let me come back. It seems that the possibilities of who I shall become are as infinite as your fecund imagination. From my oubliette within the chest of drawers, I can sometimes see bodies fumbling, sweating and convulsing with lust, and I long for my physical form, once strong in life, now old and shriveled, or perhaps plump and fertile with age like a rose hip to a rose. Oftentimes I think of Judy, my twin sister. I imagine her wandering drunkenly into the room holding the drawers which imprison me, incinerating suddenly due to the sheer volume and flammability of the alcohol in her veins. In my mind's eye, I see her burning. I admire the bright color of the flames spreading to the drawers, the air breathing back the energy that was once her spirit. We can inhabit one body together just as we had done as mere cells in our mother's womb. Once again our two souls could crowd one vessel, forcing us to struggle for dominance, for space, for existence. Josie, I see your face, and this time finally it could be mine, or could it, as my being invades Judy's body like a parasite. Would the physical universe overwhelm me? Would the exhale of a housefly compound into dissonant chords, lunging anguished and unrestrained at my eardrums? Would each microbe terrify me, leave me with nowhere to hide, nowhere to run from the insolent bubbling of nature in its purest form? Like petri dishes pungent with life, proliferating perpetually, bursting with unbridled being? Or would all the living things on earth pale in comparison to the countless lost souls caught between worlds, their cries trilling chromatically, enchantingly, in ways that are neither human nor holy? Do you hear me now as a rustling in the curtains, a murmur in a crowd, an echo without an origin? My time in purgatory has been served, don't you think? Isn't it time I at least got to meet my maker one last time? Yours, Josie. So, this is a soap opera. It is bigger than the mystery of Laura Palmer's murder. And this introduction is not about that. Not every character is going to be connected to it, but this is essentially the first in a line of red herrings for those who obsess. And that is what makes it important. It's not that Josie is going to become so important later. She will become quite central to stuff as we go in the second season, as things get stranger and weird and funny and odd. But think about the, I was going to say, the fans. I like to exclude myself from that label. Think about the fans of the show. 
the obsessive ones that are in multiple Facebook groups and talk on Reddit and go to Twin Peaks events, meetups, signings. The ones that obsess about the mystery on YouTube or in podcasts. The people who write entries like this one on Reddit. The significance of Josie being the first person we see, posted by Jake13122 two months ago. Why do we wonder about little things? Why do we wonder about 119? 119! 119! Why do we wonder about Josie being the first thing? Was Josie supposed to be directly responsible for Laura's death? No. I don't think so. She's included first because she is mysterious. What have we established with the opening titles? The opening titles run before this opening scene, and we have established a rural space that if we have seen any of the promo material, we know is in Washington. We know it is a small town, despite that number on that billboard. And yet the first person we see, whether she be the scripted Italian or the cast Chinese, is not the first person you're going to expect in this rural town in Washington. So the first visual we have here then is its own mystery. That's that eye of the duck. You know, not every scene's going to be the eye of the duck. That's not how David Lynch uses it. But that is sort of how Twin Peaks fans operate. Every scene is a potential eye of the duck. It's as if, en masse, Twin Peaks fans have decided there is no eye of the duck. Since it has not been identified by David... They want to find it, and they find it wherever they can, whenever they can. Any scene that comes up, post a photo from a single episode, and the discussion will go on for post after post after post about different interpretations of meaning and every bit of content. So was Josie supposed to connect to Judy? And was Judy supposed to connect to Sarah from the beginning? I don't think so. Can we retroactively connect all these things? Certainly. Which... That fits with a discussion I saw also on Reddit about what the Eye of the Duck means from Lynch. People were talking about why certain scenes might be it. And someone, Trail of Tacos, six years ago, says, I'm no Lynch expert, but I had the Eye of the Duck described to me by a rabid Lynch fan as follows. The Eye of the Duck is a scene, often flashy or surreal, which is not essential to the general action or plot of the film but which reveals a key theme or element of the film more succinctly than the actual plot. A real duck eye is odd. It's beady and completely different in texture and color from the rest of the bird. But if the eye wasn't on the duck, or in the exact same location that it's on the duck, the duck would look strange to us, nonsensical, incomplete. I can interrupt say that's misleading because the duck evolved to have the eye in that place. If it evolved to have it somewhere else, we would expect it to be somewhere else. But continuing, in the same way, if the eye of the duck scene were left out of its respective movie, we would still understand the general shape of the movie, so to speak. The plot would remain unchanged, and the bare-bones story would still be communicated. Lost, however, would be a central theme, element, or focus that is brought about by the careful appearance and placing the eye of the duck scene. And of course, as I said last week, David Lynch says that the eye of the duck scene in Blue Velvet is the In Dreams scene which does not really speak to the plot, but it speaks to the strangeness, it speaks to the themes, it speaks to the, our ability to look beyond the normalcy and see something else. And for Twin Peaks fans, ooh, this is everything in Twin Peaks. But also you could say it's Josie's end. Her appearance in The Return was cut, and so she becomes part of a wooden knob, and maybe she's the noise they hear later. Or maybe she's just that knob and she's lost and we wonder why did the Lodge care about her? And we never find out. And never finding that out, that's a big part of that soap opera plot. And I still haven't gotten to punctum. This is from Freeze, issue 17, November 2014, an article by Noemi Smolek. When his mother died, French cultural theorist Roland Barthes found consolation in the picture of her as a child and taking the picture as his starting point in writing an essay about photography. Bartz described the photograph as the living image of a dead thing. This was something that it shared in common with the painting which had originated, as documented by ancient Egyptian funerary objects, in portraits of the dead. But what was unique to the photograph 
according to Bartz, was its punctum, which he defined as the sensory intensely subjective effect of a photograph on the viewer. The punctum of a photograph is that accident which pricks me, but also bruises me, is poignant to me. Bartz contrasted the punctum with the studium, denoting a general approach to a photograph that is conditioned by historical and cultural experiences and is not categorically different from how other art forms are approached. Several generations of writers have since reflected on and speculated about the significance of the punctum for photography's theoretical interpretations without arriving at any consensus. Now, this is from the Museum of Education's entry on Roland Barthes, Studium and Punctum, dated March 12, 2013. Bart's Camera Lucida, first published in 1880, assumes that the automaticity of the camera distinguishes photography from traditional media and has significant implications for how we experience photographs. To address the apparently uncoded level of photographs which troubles the semiological approach Bart's himself adopted in the early 1960s, Camera Lucida advances a theory of photographic meaning that makes a distinction between the studium and the punctum and highlights the punctum as photography-specific. The studium indicates historical, social, or cultural meanings extracted via semiotic analysis, which is, you know, what we're all doing when we pull out meaning from these images and these scenes. For example, a photograph taken by Ken Wessing in 1979, portraying a war-torn street in Nicaragua with three armed soldiers patrolling a street, two nuns crossing a section of street behind the soldiers, could be interpreted as a presence of the traditional oppositions between war and religion, violence, and spirituality. The punctum points to those features of a photograph that seem to produce or convey a meaning without invoking any recognizable symbolic system. This kind of meaning is unique to the response of the individual viewer of the image. The punctum punctuates the studium and as a result pierces its viewer. To allow the punctum effect, the viewer must repudiate all knowledge. Bartz insists that the punctum is not simply the sum of desires projected into the photograph. Instead, it arises from details that are unintended or uncontrolled by the photographer. Photography can be distinguished from painting or drawing in that its apparatus visualizes the world automatically, rather than being wholly informed by the interventions of the photographer. The theory of the punctum speaks the indexical nature of the photographic medium. It also accounts for the importance of emotion and subjectivity in interacting with photographs. In my blog, 29th November 2015, an entry entitled You Are Better Than This, I said for Bartz, a photograph could be understood in terms of the studium, the range of meanings that come from, say, society, that can be read in a particular image, and punctum, the singular part of the image that draws you in. So, is the punctum the opening scene just because it's opening and it's what draws you in? No. The punctum is any of these pieces that get a feeling from you in the moment. And it's your feeling. It's your interpretation or mine. The studium is bigger, and you might be able to write objective papers about it, but the punctum is subjective. I would also note before I go that the lacrimal punctum is an anatomical thing. It is that point in your eye where the lacrimal glands come out and tears come out. So there's a punctum in your eye, a punctum in a duck's eye, I suppose. Do ducks cry? I think they do. They're mammals. Mammals cry, or they tear up at least. They don't all do it from sadness. And so, we're here with Josie. I will speed up this content as going forward. I may deal with whole scenes, whole episodes even. Who knows? But I wanted to come into this very slowly to figure out this show, to figure out my approach to this show, because I don't like the fans that attack bits of the show and obsess and interpret... It's fine when people interpret things differently. There's some people present their interpretations as if they are fact. And I don't want to do that. My interpretations are my interpretations. This show is my show. Although if you want to be a guest on it, contact me. Find Robert E.G. Black on any social media. Or follow any of the social media I'm about to list in the outro. But at this point in the show, what do we have? A rural location and this mysterious Asian woman doing her makeup next to a lamp with a couple dogs, which seems fancy, even if we don't know what that lamp is. And she seems fancy, even though we don't yet know who she is, and we're probably intrigued. Remember, in the words of Major Garland Briggs, mystery is the most essential ingredient of life. 
Mystery creates wonder, which leads to curiosity, which in turn provides the ground for our desire to understand who and what we truly are. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com, follow the show on Twitter at Peaks Radio, and on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok at Twin Peaks Radio, or join the Facebook group Lemming Drop Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows and get every episode of this one at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. The owls may not be what they seem, but they still serve an imperative function. They remind us to look into the darkness. It's like my fourth attempt to record this episode, and it's all chaos and noise, and I've got four websites, three word files, and a PDF open. And my brain. I've been podcasting for a few years now, blogged for years before that, did some YouTube reviews for a few months. Talked about that on one of the things yesterday. I don't remember which one. I've been thinking this week about what I want these shows to be like. I'll talk even more about that tomorrow in Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. But going into this, you gotta see the way my brain puts these things together. Is There's notes on one thing in one place, a thing I want to quote from a blog entry in another place that I didn't copy and paste because of the way I format my notes for this particular show. Ah, oh, it's a mess. We're in minute six. Rita and Phil and Larry are in the van. Rita's telling a story that in the original script was executive producer Gil Holly. And he looks around, he wrinkles up his little nose, he sees his shadow, he doesn't see his shadow. It's nice, people like it. And in this moment, Rita's adorable. There are things later in the film where, in my blog, I got annoyed with her. I got tired of her. But that's okay. I circled back around. It's fine now. You are new, aren't you? You know, people like blood sausage, too. People are morons. There's a great reaction from Chris Elliott on this when he mentions blood sausage. But also, cut to the blog. This is entry day 105, entry dated November 15th, 2013. People like blood sausage, too. People are morons. Gotta get the titles right on the nose sometimes. Slightly unrelated, but I thought it was interesting that this entry started. I realized today I don't really experience the feeling in O'Reilly's death in the alley anymore. I'll explain O'Reilly and the whole naming thing way later when the old man's on, but that's the old man. I know it's a sad moment and an important moment, but for me it's become just another thing that happens in the movie. Just last night I was asked if the film was getting old yet. It isn't. I still recite lines along with it. I still notice new things now and then. But, I suppose that bit of feeling being gone means it's on its way to getting old. Maybe. Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) In other news, I'm a vegetarian, but I'm curious about blood sausage. Phil calls people morons for liking this stuff, and honestly, it sounds fairly disgusting. I mean, sausage, if you think about it, is already fairly disgusting. Bunch of ground-up meat and meat byproducts stuffed in a casing. But good sausage is delicious, I know. Haven't always been a vegetarian. Still, blood sausage takes it a bit far for me. Wise Geek explains. In its most basic form, blood sausage contains onions and a few herbs and spices cooked together with pork, to which the blood is added. Additional ingredients might include cream, seasonal vegetables, or heavier spices. After being thoroughly stirred together so that the blood distributes evenly, the mixture is forced into sausage casings. The proper amount of blood and uh, thorough mixing are important so that clots of blood do not form in the sausage, which can make for an unpleasant experience for the diner. Ew. Still, I'm intrigued. I'll try any food once, I suppose. Even Kazu Marzu, though that one could be difficult. 
Kazumarzu is a fermented cheese that is not only no longer in solid form when you eat it, but has live fly larvae in it that are known to jump so that you might need to wear goggles. Also, I don't say this in the blog. It's illegal in most places. Haha. A little blood doesn't seem so potentially disgusting relative to that. Wise Geek continues, Blood sausage is considered to taste best when it is made with fresh blood that has not coagulated. So it is one of the first products that is made from a slaughtered animal. After being slaughtered, the animal is suspended and bled. The blood is collected in a basin and usually is kept somewhere cool while the animal is being butchered and dressed. See, it's fresh, so it has to be good. Dot, dot, dot. Back to the minute at hand. Actually, no. Since I already interrupted, I believe I suggested last week or was it the week before that I needed to tell you about Stephanie DeCastro. Maybe I didn't say her name. And it might take me a little while to get to her. Because I get distracted looking for my blog entry specifically about Stephanie DeCastro by finding an entry. This is day 1281, entitled Today is Tomorrow dated February 2nd, 2018. With action movies, it's easy. With courtroom dramas. Even with romances. If they had gone ahead and filmed the scenes with Stephanie DeCastro, maybe it would have been easier. But what makes Phil's situation so hard is there is not a clear victory to be had. No simple solution. Chasing after Rita is not dictated by some fairy godmother or magic mirror. Phil's situation is both entirely his own doing and entirely not. It's simple, it's complex, it's unsolvable, and eventually it solves itself, like life, if you're lucky. If the social and cultural and political and ethnic and racial roles go in your favor, and circumstance doesn't set you as an example for everybody else, the thing is, however silly bullshit American dream lines feel all too often, you can accomplish anything if you just put your mind to it. You can be anything you want to be in all the similar lies we tell children and teenagers and college students and eventually ourselves in order to get by. However silly those lines are, you cannot really live operating under the conditions that they can never be true. If life hands you lemons, make lemonade, or some other quaint saying. Or if you're a geek like me, if life throws you a Kobayashi Maru, hack the shit out of the simulator. Phil's problems are not in his circumstances. In Pittsburgh, he dreams of something better. In Punxsutawney, he dreams of anything different at all. His problems arise from his inability to exist in the moment. Phil Connors is, because of societal pressures, traditional gendered roles, and maybe his own permissive mother. She is in Reuben's draft in the script. I'm not just inventing her to be sexist myself. But if we must... We can blame Phil's father pushing Phil to excel in as much as that pressure falls outside the reasons already given. Programmed to want more. A weather person in some smaller town would probably kill for a gig in Pittsburgh. But Phil resents it. A different guy might kill for all the women Phil gets. Again, taking Phil from various drafts of the script as well as what is implicit in the film. But Phil resents it. Wants more. Wants women he doesn't even know. It is partially because the film is framed as a romantic comedy and not an existential drama, but also because of who Phil is. A lech, a womanizer, a near-alpha male who keeps pushing and pushing to alpha status because the world has told him that is what he is supposed to be. That the first thing Phil does after the little experiment with Ralph and Gus and getting arrested, and some overeating, to manipulate his situation to woo a woman. To woo her with lies. Not because the short time frame demands it, but because that is entirely how Phil interacts with the world. He is a ball of charm wrapped around self-hatred and disgust. He lies with every sarcastic line, with every put-down, because it is the only way he can interact with the world that leaves him in pain when he should have everything. Groundhog Day is a lesson in relative distress, I suppose. Were the protagonist a woman, a queer person, a person of color, the lesson would not work. One. It would be too close to the reality that person already faces. Two, it would not offer the great feel of comedy, a person higher than you being pulled down. But, in the midst of taking the successful white guy down, the film also offers a simple truth that, at least some of the time, should allow us to empathize with one another across boundaries like sex, gender, race, etc. Keep in mind, I write this from the perspective of a white male. I'm not as successful as Phil Connors. I make no play at being an alpha male, but I'm a sarcastic ass sometimes. In this blog, even, 
I systematically tear apart movies, old reviews, blog entries, at least one doctoral thesis. I pick apart the corner of the world I have claimed for myself, the territory of Groundhog Day and movie bloggers, because it demonstrates in theory that I should belong here. But how fucked up is that? I'd rather be genuine in the real world. Sorry, reading that I'm not sure I'd buy it. I'll continue. The whole blog setup is problematic because, honestly, a disagreement seems like it would be more readable than a bunch of people cheering together. Not that I really ever make an effort to grow my audience, but I write what comes to mind and conflict comes to mind. This review says Phil's feelings for Rita represent romantic love. I must tear that view down. Prove it wrong. That review lets Phil off the hook for messing with Nancy, and I basically accuse him of rape. And so on. For a more recent example, just yesterday, W. Bond wrote a lengthy piece about the film, deliberately coming at it without seeking out other reviews or pieces about the film. It's a nice piece, but as I'm reading it, my impulse to debate with Bond about specifics, like how can I quote the piece and pick it apart, but you know what is actually more fun on the internet of late? Defending things. Examining things without insulting them. Not that I would give up on insulting things, nor will my sarcasm go away. But if I can manage, maybe I will be more consistently positive. Or just do whatever is fun because this is my time loop and you were all just visiting. Punxsutawney Phil saw his shadow this morning. So did Woodstock Willie. Six more weeks of winter. Six more weeks of life. Enjoy it. And if you can, help someone else enjoy it as well. That was 1281. It only briefly mentioned Stephanie DeCastro so I should tell you who Stephanie DeCastro is. So, this is day 226. Maybe it's not a curse. Dated March 16th, 2014. Von Franz 1980 states that redemption in fairy tales should not be viewed as having religious connotations, but has to do with becoming restored after having been cursed. Such fairy tales do not dwell on the problem, but on the redemption process, making them relevant in therapy and healing. That process is reminiscent of Phil Connor's situation, which is never overtly explained. His story focusing on his process of recovering his humanness and fellow feeling, which appears to lead to his curse being lifted. That is from Banesh, 2011. It's the doctoral thesis I mentioned in the previously read entry. This is why I put a pink tab labeled self-cursed in my binder of notes and scripts and everything else. Sorry, I had to paraphrase a little here, but we'll get back to quote in a moment. In that second revision of the script, Phil is not self-cursed. He is specifically cursed by Stephanie DeCastro, and that would have made better narrative sense if she had, I don't know, been in the film after the time loop was in place rather than her two scenes early on and then no mention whatsoever later. But neither Ruben nor Ramis wanted to explain the time loop anyway. Stephanie only existed to prove to the studio they could explain the time loop. Ramus has stated, I've seen it in a few places, but don't have a specific source, Andy. They never even intended to film it. And it's good, because the scene is, well, silly. The scene between Phil and Stephanie is only somewhat silly, but the curse scene, it's just bad. And now, jumping away from the entry, we're going to cut to the third revision of the script. This Stephanie DeCastro bit is in the second revision and the third revision. Backtrack a little. They're still at the TV station. Phil's talking to Rita. Phil, well, I hope I've convinced you. Rita, I'll line up a crew and transportation. We can all go up in the van together. Phil, I think I'll take my own car. I'm not that fond of my fellow man. Rita, exiting. Nice attitude. Phil, nice face. Why don't you ride up with me? Rita. No thanks. Stephanie DeCastro, an attractive, dark-eyed, dark-haired correspondent, glares at Phil from across the studio. Interior, Phil's office, later. Phil is in his cluttered cubicle, talking on a headset phone while he reviews cassettes of his groundhog spots from the past two years on a small monitor. As he talks, he stuffs a number of personal items in an overnight bag, all the time watching himself on the TV monitor. Phil, on the phone. They don't really think of me as a weatherman around here. More of a personality, but with the credibility of a first-class broadcast journalist. 
Once you look at my tape, I think you'll see what they mean. Stephanie enters and stands in the doorway looking at Phil for a long moment. There is something vaguely off-center about this woman. Not quite fatal attraction, but still a little scary. Stephanie, bitterly, I just want to know one thing. Did I do something wrong, or are you just tired of me, or what? I have to know. Phil sighs. Phil, on the phone. Dan, can I call you back? I've just been handed something very hot, about to break. I'd better get on it. He picks up some papers and rustles them for effect. Okay, thanks. He takes off the headset, gets up, and closes the door for privacy. Phil, kindly, you didn't do anything wrong, Stephanie, and I'm not tired of you. It's just that I don't have time for a real relationship right now. I told you that the first time we went out. Stephanie, getting close. Everybody says that at the beginning of a relationship. Phil, gently pushing her away. I'm different. I really mean it. Things are really starting to move for me now. I'm not going to be doing the weather for the rest of my life. I was just talking to the CBS guy about a network job. I want that. This is just the beginning for me. I can't waste any more time. Stephanie, are you saying our relationship was a waste of time? Phil, our relationship? We went out a total of four times. And only twice did anything happen. We had fun. Fun. But fun is not commitment. Chokes himself for emphasis. Stephanie, closing in again. Just give it time. We're extremely compatible. There may even be some past lives involvement here. Phil, see? So we've already done this. Let's move on. Next case. Stephanie, you know what's wrong with you, Phil? You're selfish. You don't have time for anyone but yourself. Phil, exactly. That's what I'm trying to tell you. You don't want to be with me. You can do better. Look, Stephanie, if I ever said or did anything to mislead you, I'm sorry for that. But right now I have to do this groundhog thing, and I don't have a handle on it yet. Stephanie, Phil, handle this. She gives him the finger and exits. Phil, I know you're angry, Stephanie, and I respect that. <laughs> Which, actually, the last line's pretty funny. Then we go to them in the... Phil drives his car, separate from Larry and Rita. He calls them on his car phone. It's not that exciting, and we get... Okay, that's confusing. Her second scene is only in the third revision. That's very strange. Anyway, this is after he meets Nancy on the first night that he's in town. Cut to, insert, a thick book. The cover reads 101 Curses, Spells, and Enchantments You Can Do at Home. A well-manicured feminine hand opens the book to a marked page. Interior, Cherry Street Inn, night, same time. Phil enters his room and drunkenly tosses his overcoat, scarf, and gloves on the floor in a heap. Interior, Stephanie's bedroom, night. Stephanie DeCastro, Phil's disaffected ex-lover, is sitting cross-legged on the floor with the book of curses open in front of her. Her hair is down. She's wearing a caftan with a zodiac print. There are candles everywhere and other vaguely occult decorating touches. Insert. Phil's business card is dropped into a dish. Then the tarot card of the hanged man, a chicken bone, and a feather are placed on top of it. Phil. He stands at the sink looking at himself in the mirror, flexing his muscles. Stephanie. Reading from the book, she mutters incantations in a secret language. Then she sprinkles some powder on the plate, then a few drops of oil. Then she makes a few passes over it with her hands. Then, much to her surprise, the contents of the plate spontaneously combust. Phil. As he crosses to the bed, he accidentally knocks over the suitcase stand, spilling his clothes out onto the floor. He contemplates picking them up for a moment, decides to leave them there, and flops down on the bed. He lies there looking up at the ceiling until the room starts to spin around, then he closes his eyes and quickly drops off to sleep, still fully clothed. Stephanie. To complete the spell, she picks up a broken wristwatch and drops it into the fire. Insert. Phil's business card, the hanged man, and the broken watch in flames. The watch crystal is cracked, and the hands are frozen at 5.59. Dissolve to. Close up. Clock. The digital clock radio changes from 5.59 to 6 a.m. The radio comes on, playing the end of Sonny and Cher hit, I Got You Babe, just as it did the day before. That's Stephanie DeCastro. 
going back to the blog entry, this reads like a scene from a bad 80s comedy, one in which maybe nerds and jocks would go to war with each other, or with the dean of some college. And at this point, trying to read the screenplay as someone who doesn't know where the story is going, I expect Stephanie to come back into the film later, and maybe Phil will have to discover he really loves her to get out of whatever curse she puts on him. I mean, if she curses him, and the point is anything else, then Phil cannot be the protagonist. Well, as long as this is a lighthearted comedy anyway. It could turn into a serious occult film with comedic undertones, for all I know at this point. Either way, Stephanie cannot just disappear after this scene. In response to the hanged man card, the chicken bone, and the feather, I wrote when I was in college the first time I wrote a paper about the representation of voodoo in popular film. I used The Serpent and the Rainbow, 1988, Angel Heart, 1987, The Believers, 1987, and Live and Let Die, 1973, and it didn't go well for Hollywood. The presentation was mostly simplistic and stereotypical, bordering on offensive. If I remember right, it's been a long time since I wrote that paper, and just as long since I've seen any of those four films. The order I just listed those films would go from least offensive representation of voodoo to most offensive. Hell, the Roger Moore James Bond films were all a bit cartoonish, and Live and Let Die didn't even try to present its occult elements as anything that anyone might actually believe in or practice. But anyway, never mind the way Hollywood has stereotyped voodoo and the occult previously, this description right here in the second revision for Groundhog Day demonstrates the worst of it. I mean, I once suggested the specific playing cards visible in the hat scene on God Day in the film held deeper meaning, but I don't think Harold Ramis knew anything about tarot cards except maybe the briefest of cursory research before he mentioned the hanged man here, just for one fault. And the chicken bone and feather combined with the ridiculously titled book that's just bad writing, and or 80s writing. To be fair, I don't think the hanged man is necessarily an inappropriate card for Phil in the future. Wait, 1911, describes the card thus. The gallows from which he is suspended form a tau cross, while the figure from the position of the legs forms a felot. I don't know what that word is. Fuck it. Dot, dot, dot. That's Stephanie DeCastro. That's the blog. That's the thing. It goes all over. You know, my podcasts do the same thing now. I mean, so many shows. What shows have I had? Let's see. Uh, yeah, Michael Myers Minute, Dave Made a Minute, The Room Minute, Annihilation Minute, Mandy Sucks Minute, Cock and Bull Minute, Two Minutes About Time, Pump Up the Minute, Five Minute Arrival, and Twin Peaks Radio. And now you have Minutia Ex Machina, Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute, and Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. That's not even counting the failures, the ones that got left behind. I wanted to do a sequel to Dave Made a Minute because Dave Made a Minute was one where I gave pieces of a movie to podcasters I knew who hadn't seen it, and they had to try to figure out what was going on. And I was going to do a sequel, and I'm ruining it now because, officially, it ain't happening. It was probably just going to be called Minute or Two. Minute or was my production title for Dave Made a Minute. I was going to give them minutes from very obscure, often bad, films, plural, films, not all the same films, so that it was literally impossible for them to figure out what was going on. And I was actively trying to find scenes where there wasn't even dialogue or actors they could recognize. And I'm kind of glad I didn't do it. Then there was my own show, Mandalorian Time Machine, which had nothing to do with the show The Mandalorian. It had to do with my own nerdy connection of DeLorean with Mandalorian. And I just wanted it to be the sort of nerdy show where we talked about whatever that was nerdy, except I'm only nerdy about a few things. I'm a movie geek, you know? And there were some episodes of that show, and it was okay. And then it kind of got lost because I didn't have a schedule on it. I needed a schedule. There was, well, Cock and Bull is one of the ones I already listed. It's one that did run. It did its thing. But it got cut short because it lost momentum. Because it was hard to find guests to talk about the things that it was doing. It was avoiding talking about a particular movie. And instead was talking about some of my favorite films and comparing them, kind of pairing them up against each other and seeing what was better. Except I'm not good at that. Making a bracket was hard. Ranking things is hard. It's not normally how I think about film. Currently, currently, it isn't happening. But currently, 
There's also Stand By Minute, which was going to be a group project I was leading, looking at Stand By Me, because it was the 35th anniversary of its release this year. Except then, the farther we get away from August, when that anniversary was, the less I was inclined to deal with it. And as of now, in December, as I'm recording this, the first five episodes have been turned in. That was me and Luke Allen, my co-host for Two Minutes About Time, and who was a guest just a couple weeks ago on this, did the first five minutes. Never edited them. Just recordings. And five other minutes later got turned in by one of the participants. I didn't put a deadline on it, because I wasn't in a rush. And then it just kind of got lost in my head and in reality. And I apologize to Movie Rob if he's listening to this. I think he was the only other one who turned something in. Sorry about that. I don't know if they'll ever see the light of day. If you did something really fantastic with those episodes, I will find a way to put them out for you. I didn't even listen to them yet. I was waiting. There's plans for future things or ongoing things. Movies by Minutes is a great format for me because I can obsess. But also I need room to do other stuff. And so I thought of a, another show. I think I might even register some social media for it and park my space for later. Of course, between these three shows and Twin Peaks Radio, I got some ongoing stuff at least for a couple of years. But it was going to be called Minute 17 because there's this thing in screenwriting where Minute 17 is kind of the moment where you know what the film is about. Sometime before that, usually I think it's about Minute 7 or something, someone is supposed to say what the movie's about. But minute 17 is when the audience understands, which is like halfway to plot point one, as it were. That was one. I've also thought of doing, because we did, uh, Movies by Minutes has done a few times now a trivia contest about movies for charity. And I thought of doing a podcast game show about movies as well. Who knows if that'll happen? Maybe. My point is, I take this thing in many directions, sometimes many at once. Like this week, this week back in December, this week in February, this overcomplicated mess for me that I put upon myself in the what penultimate week of the semester when final speeches are come due, and I give myself six different recordings to do by myself, and a lot to cover. But this is my thing. Groundhog Day is my thing. Not only did I write all the blog entries on the movie, I wrote my master's thesis on blogging. Title was Blogging to Make Sense of the World, an Autoethnographic Approach to Sensemaking and the Presentation and Manipulation of Self Online. Find it online if you want to read it. It's like 130 pages long. Double space, though. So it's not as horrible as it seems. Or is. I don't know. I haven't really read it since then. I've glanced at it because I referenced it in my blog a few times after that. But I'll read you the abstract before we get back to the minute. The following paper is an autoethnographic look at blogging and the deliberate manipulation of self online. My Groundhog Day Project blog has been explicitly linked to my personal life, but the approach herein looks beyond the explicit connections to discover how I have used this blog to aid in sense-making, Wyke 1988-1995, in the face of a life crisis, separation and pending divorce, and in the presentation of and recreation of self. My research involved a grounded theory approach to my own blog entries and uses other blogs for comparison to analyze the ways in which writing for public consumption, explicitly personal or not, can be a therapeutic and productive ritual. My research question is, how does a blogger, especially one going through a life crisis, manipulate his or her public identity to make sense of the world and recreate his slash her place in the world? Now in 2021, I wish I'd used the there. Oh well. Most of life is just junk, right? It's, it's filler. Mm. And then there's these moments when all the randomness turns into something perfect. It's like life's dropping all the bullshit just for a second to show us how amazing it could be all the time if it wanted to. Hmm. I don't know. I think maybe we're supposed to become like better people. No, I honestly don't even know how that could be possible. Never think about it. We must miss so many of them. All those tiny perfect things are just poof, gone, lost forever. But not today. That is a disturbingly inspirational idea, Mark. It's a perfect day. You couldn't plan a day like this. Well, you can. It just takes an awful lot of work. Time. 
last revision is what counts, apparently. What if we found them all? All the perfect things in this one town, in this one day, we could collect them. Interruption really quick, because in doing the episode by myself, I forgot about the time loop of the week. Oh, no. Just last night, I watched what's probably the latest time loop movie. Christmas dot 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 again. Question mark. There might even be an exclamation point. I forget. So an intero bang, but it wasn't very good. It starts out with a character who it's like the opening of Home Alone, where the family sucks, and the kid's kind of annoyed by it, and so she sucks. But she doesn't really suck that bad until she's in the time loop. So the movie kind of misses the point a little bit. But anyway, I didn't want to talk about that. Since I quoted multiple entries in my blog in this episode, I thought it was worth quoting the blog again. So this is November 4th, 2013, day 95. There is a heck of a lot more to it than just that. Backtracking just slightly, I can't believe I neglected to mention in regard to number 24 verbal tags yesterday. That was, I guess, the first time I did the Christ figure scale in the blog. That Ned also says, oh God, it is so good to see you. Foretracking back into the present. No, foretracking is no word, but it should be. I just watched Time Freak 2011 again. I will interrupt the reading to point out that Time Freak the short film is better than Time Freak the feature film. And I think the short film is still available on iTunes, so you should watch it. It's great. Back to the reading. It's an Oscar-nominated short about Stillman, a guy with a time machine who has spent three days, real time, and a year and a half, his time, going back in time to yesterday. Just yesterday. See, he had a run-in with the dry cleaner because the shirt he planned to wear for photos in ancient Rome wasn't ready, so he went back to try it again, and again, and again. He tells his friend he was just trying to change his reaction to the situation. Since you probably won't ever see the film unless you find me and ask me to show it to you, or you buy a copy yourself on iTunes, I'm going to get right into spoilers. He ultimately, that time, ends up hugging the dry cleaner instead of fighting with him because it's only a shirt. But then he runs into the girl he likes, and while they have a cute bit of interaction at first, the conversation gets awkward, so he travels back to do it again and again and again. In explaining it, he tells his friend that after a few hundred tries, Debbie and I had a meaningful conversation. But then Debbie convinces him that he should stand up to the dry cleaner, so he heads back there again. The movie isn't long, so there's not a lot more to it, but only a handful of threads on IMDb about the short, at least two of them mentioned Groundhog Day. For the record, I saw Time Freak back when it was nominated for the Oscar, because I get obsessive about the Oscars. Hard to believe, I'm sure. Anyway, there's a great line that also reminds me of the movie Primer, which I might need to watch again for this blog, about having conversations that Phil Connors would surely understand. Stillman tells his friend, Conversations tend to get pretty awkward after you've had them 25 times. It takes a lot of work just to get them back to normal. Which, jumping out of the reading again, is how the beginning of this episode was. <laughs> Multiple attempts to get it recorded, finally get into it, and then audacity cut out on me and I had to start over. I don't know if I left something out. Doesn't matter now. This is day 97, just a, what, a few days later, a few days earlier, no, a few days later, the entry entitled, It is So Good to See You. Not much to say tonight, instead a few images as I start sorting screen caps, finally got a HD version of Groundhog Day and was just taking screen cap after screen cap to use later. Back to the reading. Actually, first, a bit of an addendum to my discussion of Time Freak two entries ago. Here's a few shots of Stillman's timeline diagrams. I just have to describe them to you. It's a lot of very complex lists of the order of the events and lines of dialogue that he could say, branching, conversation, mapping, and then continuing the words. Think back on my discussion of another short film, Tango, and the complexity in planning that out and relate that to Phil's final day in the time loop. Here's what I listed for that day before. His report from Gobbler's Knob, after presumably picking up pastries and coffee again for Rita and Larry. Spending some time at the Tip Top Cafe, remember it's Doris who gets him up on stage for the bachelor auction. Buying a whole bunch of insurance, whole life term, uniflex, fire, theft, auto, dental, health, with the optional death and dismemberment plan, water damage. 
a piano lesson with Mary, fanning flames of Debbie's passions for Fred, finding WrestleMania tickets somewhere in town, fixing Felix's back, saving the kid falling out of the tree, changing the old lady's tire, saving Buster from choking and lighting that woman's cigarette, playing at the banquet, sculpting Rita's face in ice slash snow, and feels errands have a set schedule that he has to remember. He can't really write it down. Or rather, there's no point in writing it down because in order to remember it enough to write it down in the morning, he's already got to have it memorized anyway. But enough about complexity of schedules. That's what my week's been. <laughs> that last line isn't in the reading. <laughs> That's just me. Where was I? Rita saying I like blood sausage, right? And then we go to the exterior of the van. We are in Blairsville, Pennsylvania. They exit 22 east onto 119 north for Marchant and Punxsutawney, which means they took a different route than Google suggested last week, but the distances are comparable, 85 miles out instead of 80. The exit circles around to the right, south, and then goes under 22 to head north. A station wagon follows behind the news van a little too closely. Continuity note, the WPBH decal on the side of the van is quite close to the windows where it was in the wide shot last minute. We'll come back to that. Then we are in Algonquin, Illinois for the next shot. The van heads south on Main Street, where it intersects with Arrowhead Drive. Camera pans with van as it passes the billboard for Punxsutawney that was erected just for this shot. Continuity note, the WPBH decal is about centered between the back of the van and the windows. Actually, it's a little closer to the rear. And as I had a war with the IMDb goofs page in my blog, it is worth noting that this is not necessarily a continuity problem, because the decal could be a magnetic thing that is easily shifted when they, for example, stop for gas between moments that we see. We linger on the billboard. At the left edge of the billboard is Punxsutawney Phil, wearing a fedora, an umbrella tucked under his right arm, a newspaper under his left arm that says, Weather for Today. Welcome to, written in cursive, Punxsutawney shaped out of logs and a banner under that that says the original weather capital of the world since 1887. There's a cartoony layout of the town square, but only half of it really. The Pennsylvania Hotel on the left, the courthouse up to the right, Gobbler's Knob and the gazebo. No sign of the second smaller gazebo that is in the quarter of the square we never actually see in the film, and no sign of any buildings at all on the right side of the image. Another banner at the bottom of the billboard says... Gobbler's Knob, Food and Lodging, Pop, 6,782, which I don't even remember how accurate that was. I know I wrote about that in my blog, but I didn't open that one for today. Sorry. The van is visible beneath the billboard, quite small, disappearing behind a hill. Then, we are in Woodstock, Illinois. The van entering from the north on Main Street toward the town square, which is the same way the big rig entered in planes, trains, and automobiles which, filming that bit, was why location manager Bob Hudgens, uncredited on that film but credited here, knew about Woodstock's town square. And I think I've already said in a previous episode they picked Woodstock because it had a town square. The van passes the Alpine Theater, where Heidi 2, a family classic, is playing. The van passes the Tip Top Cafe. This shot is effectively mapping the square for us for later, but we don't actually see the front of the Tip Top or its sign. The van turns right onto Cass Street, and we can see the Pennsylvania Hotel, really the Woodstock Opera House, across the square, but not very clearly because of the trees, and then the minute ends before they make it all the way around to there. Thank you for listening. The Groundhog Day Project Minute by Minute is just one part of an existential trilogy of podcasts. Tune in every Tuesday for Minutia Ex Machina, every Wednesday for more Groundhog Day, and every Thursday for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Minute. Follow this show on Twitter at Groundhog Day MXM, and on Instagram and Facebook at Groundhog Day Project. This has been a production of Lemming Drop Studio. You can find links to more at lemmingdrops.com, or join the Facebook group Lemming Drop Studio Tour. Also, you can support all my shows at patreon.com slash lemmingdrops. Until next time.
I have traveled through time. What is wrong in the end which never comes? Or which comes again and again, lap, lap, laughing, like waves. How, I don't know. How do you sleep at night? You've never seen Groundhog Day? Hmm. Yeah, you know Groundhog Day is not a documentary. Man, are you hungry? I haven't eaten since later this afternoon. After being thoroughly stirred together so that the blood distributes evenly, the mixture is forced into sausage casings. Sausage is forced into sausage is forced into sausage casings. <laughs> Even the word sausage doesn't fit well in my mouth.